This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hi there, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast with your hosts, Rod and Adam. Hi, Adam. Hello. Um, so yeah, this is the podcast from CAF's Think Tank Giving Thought, where we look at some of the big issues of the day that are out there in the news and beyond, uh, and look at where they've got relevance to philanthropy and the work of charities. Uh, and this week, we're taking on a big topic, which is inequality. Um, so I think it's kind of pretty obvious um, to anyone who reads the news or follows politics that uh, income inequality is a massive issue uh, here in the UK and everywhere else around the world. I mean, uh, probably most recently we saw uh, at the time of the Davos summit back in January, um, Oxfam did their usual annual uh, publication where they kind of work out what increasingly dwindling number of uh, wealthy people in the world own you know, half of all of the wealth. And it, it's usually a pretty eye-catching figure. Raises a lot of questions about you know the, the concentration of wealth in an increasingly small number of hands. Um, it's an interesting one for philanthropy uh, for kind of a couple of reasons that we're going to be looking at today. I mean, one of them is that pragmatically, uh, I think philanthropy has latched onto the fact that inequality is a big issue, and it's become a big focus for some sort of big name philanthropists and, and institutions. So, most notably, I think the Ford Foundation in the U.S. has entirely shifted its strategy to be about addressing uh, income inequality which is kind of huge statement on their part well, i think it's i think it's inequality more generally but certainly certainly implicit in their decision is that income inequality will be a big part of their focus yeah no i, I think you're right and i suppose you're right to say that inequality does take uh, a number of of different forms i suppose we're kind of focusing primarily on income inequality here just because it kind of keeps it narrower but what we're saying is sort of i think relevant to, to all different forms of uh, yeah. inequality of you know of kind of power and uh, opportunity and all those sorts of things um i think the kind of what immediately becomes pretty obvious uh when you start thinking about the role of philanthropy in addressing inequality is is a kind of quite fundamental paradox which is that using philanthropy as a tool to address inequality say of income um is quite potentially extremely difficult because uh it's almost a kind of prerequisite for doing philanthropy in the first place that there is some sort of inequality you know if philanthropy is about the haves trying to help the have-nots by giving away some of their their assets or wealth that requires there to be people who have and people who have not in the first place yeah. and kind of does that mean that you're, if you're a philanthropist, you're always just going to be part of the problem rather than part of the solution? Yeah, I think trying to address in income inequality, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you want to eradicate all income inequality so that everyone's on a completely level income uh, plane. But at the same time, clearly, the kinds of philanthropy that have shaped modern world, particularly create some of the biggest foundations they are the direct result of incredible accumulations of 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 wealth often often at the direct cost of you know uh uh the incomes uh and and sometimes worker rights of people that have been employed there's 
there's ultimately quite it's ultimately quite a difficult subject for many particularly old foundations to to grasp and it's i think there are there are different levels of seriousness uh, on show with uh, strategies for talking about and addressing uh, income inequality through philanthropy and i think that's something that's been um, very much highlighted by peter buffett uh, son of uh, warren buffett um, who was you know he wrote an article in the new york times a while ago um, talking about what he termed as conscience laundering which is you know, to talk, it's him talking about lots of other wealthy philanthropists that he's met who give away a lot of money to solve some of the symptoms of inequality whilst actively uh, contributing to income inequality in the way in which they are making their money. So it's kind of, you know, the, the, the right hand that gives... Uh, being completely separate from the left hand earning um whereas you know there's a case to be made to say that it is possible for philanthropists should they really be committed to uh to try and address income inequality and there are, i guess there's a number of strategies for for doing that yeah and i think that goes back to what you're saying about different types of inequality because um the inequality of of income is one thing and to some extent you know just giving away money you can do something about that but if the ways in which you make that money uh kind of only strengthen the systemic problems that that are causing that income inequality in the first place you're never going to be a solution to the problem and maybe there's something about the kind of power inequality and kind of i think one of the one of the hardest things to do in philanthropy is at the same time as you're giving away money give away some degree of power or control um, with it and i think some of the the best forms of philanthropy you ever see are the ones where philanthropists have found ways of doing that even though it's often very difficult Mm. of kind of meaningfully giving away ownership um, over the way that the money is distributed or kind of imbuing people with rights that sometimes actually kind of cut into their own um level of power or kind of level of of um uh, of power um in relation to those people um and, and you know you don't often see that happening yeah exactly i mean i i suppose like thinking off the top of your head if you wanted to really try and address uh income inequality you would be wanting to fund community groups and uh local grassroots movements and perhaps you'd be wanting to do that anonymously which you know clashes with the uh the movement towards uh transparency uh, and a lot of the same people who are critical of philanthropists for having too much power uh would uh, would actually be standing in the way of the kind of uh anonymous giving that would enable philanthropists to uh to to give without exerting power i guess yeah absolutely um i think uh we're going to come on to next um, having a little talk about one of the the other kind of arguments for why you might want to address uh, inequality through philanthropy it's perhaps a slightly less positive one um, we'll come on to that in a minute <laughs> um so yeah we're back and uh, just following up on what we were saying before about philanthropy and inequality you know 
you can see how there are some people who want to address inequality through philanthropy for entirely noble and altruistic means. But there is a very long and rich tradition in the history of philanthropy of actually being much more cynical and seeing philanthropy as a tool for quelling unrest from those beneath you in society. And I mm. think that's something that's alive and well today and which you've thought quite a bit about, Adam. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, as you say, that there's a there's an extent to which that is cynical. Uh, you you're thinking really about that the issue of reciprocity, you know, giving but hoping to get something in return to it, essentially. Um, but rarely, I think this was much more the case uh, historically. But rarely today are you seeing people fully recognise uh, the the potential for uh for philanthropy to uh engage with systemic risk now to kind of get to grips with how big the risk of uh income inequality is you're you're seeing you know renowned socialist organizations like the world economic forum start to become in- increasingly concerned or you know the international monetary fund also expressing concerns about the the risk of uh out of control income inequality and that that risk being a risk of actually economic stagnation uh it becomes more and more efficient economies can become more and more efficient if income inequality gets worse and worse also um the real fear of of political and social unrest and i think that's a fear that seems to have uh manifested recently you know we've seen populist movements uh, around the world, uh, not least here in the UK, but also in the US, and where you know we're seeing in a number of countries in lots of different contexts those kinds of uprising, and th- that's often there's often the same kind of well, there are many causes, but one potential root cause is that middle classes and and uh, up kind of higher earning working classes have just not seen any increase in income uh, adjusted inflation over the last sort of 10 15 20 even 30 years in some countries um and that offers so that offers a real risk a real systemic risk um it can create kind of volatile societies and if you look to areas of the world where we've seen really dangerous volatility uh right down to kind of revolutions you can see that actually Governments, never mind philanthropists, are, are kind of routinely underestimating the risk uh, posed by uh, by inequality uh, and by a kind of you know lack of representation and rights and power for people. Um, and they're also failing to understand that civil society can be a vital tool to try and you know create a kind of pressure gauge for that increasing unrest to represent some of those uh, views and and voices. Um, so an example that I've written about in the past uh, was uh, the kind of semi-recent history of, of Egypt, which, uh, you know, under, under uh, uh, the old Mubarak regime, uh, they, they repressed uh, voices from within civil society uh, pretty ruthlessly uh, to the extent that it was almost impossible to engage in any kind of criticism of government. And as a result, they didn't they didn't realize uh, what kind of a movement was building beneath them uh, in the foundations of Egyptian society. So when 
million, a million people flooded onto Tyre Square and the government fell, they didn't see it coming. And then neither did the next government. They learned entirely the wrong, uh, the, the wrong lesson. Uh, uh, and then subsequently, there was another revolution, even after they'd cracked down civil society more. And then even now, uh, with Abdul uh, Sisi's government, they are still repressing civil society. In fact, they're doubling down to some extent, despite the fact that that might be their best opportunity to try and address or, or hear some of those critical voices from civil society and to kind of allow some of that pressure to be released. Yeah. Yeah, and it takes, I suppose it takes a kind of quite a uh, mature long-term view from politicians to to accept that actually it's probably in their own ruthless self-interest to give people the opportunity to criticise them within sort of structured frameworks because the alternative is that people turn up outside your office and start burning effigies you know yeah. it's kind of it's quite difficult to to realize that and i think you know what you're saying there is is the sort of absolutely the the right thing and the positive spin on the idea of philanthropy supporting civil society as a way of allowing you know discourse and dissent to be voiced um so that you avoid some of these problems i think my my framing it up front as a slightly cynical act was somewhat colored by the time i've spent looking at the the history of philanthropy because there's a there's a pretty rich tradition through the ages of people the those in power absolutely recognizing that kind of income inequality was a massive issue so the tudors recognized this it was a huge issue around the napoleonic wars and philanthropy was very much part of the, the toolkit for addressing that but the difference is that they thought that essentially it was a means to kind of crush suppression because if you gave to the poor, they would be so grateful for your benevolence that they would sort of forget all about their concerns and just go quietly about their way. And I think, you know, that's quite an unsophisticated approach. I think there is a danger that there are still people in the world today who think like that. Um, yeah. And that that's entirely the wrong approach and will only make things worse. Um, so I think we're just going to come on uh, in the next section to have a little think about the future uh, and how inequality might either become a thing of the past or the absolutely defining characteristic of the world it's a sort of utopia versus dystopia section yeah that's right <laughs> place your bets okay so yeah we, we were talking in the last section about um kind of the self enlightened uh, the sort of enlightened self-interest of philanthropists um uh, kind of trying to address inequality as a way of quelling unrest. And and basically what we're, we're talking about now is um, whether inequality in the future is going to become a problem that's essentially solved or whether it's going to become much, much worse. And what we're thinking about here is some work that you, you and I have been doing, Adam, looking at the idea of kind of automation and the kind of replacement of, of the majority of kind of current uh, jobs, both kind of blue collar jobs, but increasingly white collar jobs in the workplace. Mm. Um, and what that will mean for the sort of the shape of society and, you know, what people essentially will do in a world without work. Um, this is linked to ideas like a kind of notion of um, basic income, which is, you know, essentially that kind of, if people are, are no longer able to earn money for themselves in most instances, how are they going to be able to survive? And do you need to introduce some form of government payment that everyone receives at a kind of, you know, that's not means tested? Um, now, in that scenario, there's kind of two 
divergent points of view. One is this will be an amazing utopia because, you know, we're nobody will have to work anymore. We'll all be free to just focus on kind of creative and scientific pursuits in safe in the knowledge that we've got a basic income and that'll be great. And it sounds you know, good. Every, everybody will be on a par. It does sound nice, doesn't it? Um, but the you know, the flip side to that is um, you know, I think Karl Marx is kind of one uh, very uh, keen uh, insight, whether you agree with the implementation of his philosophy or not, was, you know, who controls the means of production is a pretty good way of sort of assessing societies, particularly in historical context. And, And in the future, it's going to be who controls the means of technology. And it's likely that a very small number of people who are the ones who actually kind of own and operate the you know the the technology that guides automation and the way we live our lives are going to have an absolutely vast amount of power and wealth and that everyone else is going to be you know totally at the other end of the spectrum so whilst the kind of the overall amount of inequality might go down uh, actually what will happen is that it'll just be more and more wealth concentrated in an even smaller number of hands um, and that actually the kind of the inequality that everybody's subject to will be so ingrained in the kind of the, sh- the structure of society that it will be almost impossible to overcome. And that doesn't sound like a world I'd want to live in. Okay, yeah, that doesn't sound so great. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess in that kind of <laughs> dystopian uh, uh, vision, y- you're, it's not just wealth, it's power, isn't it? Um, Absolutely, A yeah. huge amount of power put in in, in those people's hands, but also they would essentially be a very, well, a tiny amount of uh, tax contributors in the world. And then almost everybody else would be kind of living uh, out of their pocket. And in that, in that scenario, you know, you see it around the world, governments where nearly all of, the, of government's resources are taken in tax from a very small number of sources. For, for example, oil, well, natural resource rich, countries this is often the case um it can be very difficult for democracy to flourish in those countries because ultimately the 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 government doesn't rely on its people uh to be funded so even even if they rely on them to be elected they're ultimately accountable financially to an extremely small number of taxpayers so it opens up lots of questions about kind of power and accountability, but I guess it also opens up lots of questions for what would philanthropy mean for those very small, ludicrously wealthy, powerful uh, individuals and companies. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's um, totally right because in that scenario, the kind of particularly where the vast majority of the uh, the uh, populace are not working or kind of dependent on you know some form of basic income provided by the state but then there are a small number of people who are still able to earn their own wealth and earn you know vastly disproportionate amounts of wealth you know is there is there still any need for them to give given that everybody has the support of a basic income you know what does the profile of needs look like in in that scenario and given that there are going to be such a small number of people um with such a large amount of wealth if they do decide to focus on specific issues the danger of them distorting democracy or the kind of priorities of society 
um, are going to be absolutely huge. And, you know, mm. that that's already something that's an issue um, in various different guises. So in the US, there's a problem at the moment with well-meaning, very wealthy philanthropists getting involved in funding uh, in the public school system. And even when their motives are absolutely right, the problem is that they come in with such large amounts of money and decide to put it towards, you know, like charter schools or some other model of schools. They pick a winner. And then that automatically skews the focus of policy towards that. And, you know, if there's only six people and they they all have all the money in the society and they just decide what what it is that they want to do all of a sudden that clearly that's just going to dictate the shape of society for everybody else and those people are totally unaccountable exactly on the on the other side of this though they're kind of the glass half full size i suppose side I that's, suppose. that's unlike you adam i know <laughs> yeah more of a glass smashed over the floor type of person generally but um but if you are trying to put a positive spin on this, there will be a, a huge amount of spare uh, labour capacity in that future society where most people are on a universal basic income and don't have a job, essentially. People are going to be free to fulfil their own uh, kind of ideas, interests, uh, but also follow causes that they're passionate about. Um, and so, you know, you may see, whilst there may be less philanthropic resource to come from uh, ordinary people, but not necessarily, depends obviously on, on the scale of uh, universal basic income. The one thing they will have is labour capacity and, you know, intellectual capacity um, and time. So you could, you could end up with an environment where there's a real flowering of, of association and of... Uh, you know, people coming together in movements, uh, and that could play some role in in holding our future uh, trillionaire overlords to account. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, that that definitely, I much as it pains me to say, is a possible way of putting a positive spin on it. Uh, <laughs> and, and of course, as well, you know, you were saying that, um, you know, if there aren't people essentially earning income and having to pay tax, well, quite a lot of people have seriously put forward the idea that robots in the future will have to pay tax of, of some sort on their earnings. And that kind of brings us back to an idea we talked about on a previous podcast about um, AI philanthropy, because, you know, yep. one of the things you could do in that scenario is program into the, the algorithms that govern, the, you know, those kind of automated processes the need to allocate some proportion of that to philanthropy. Um, you know, what a world in which a vast army of robot philanthropists decide for us is best looks like. I'll leave it up for everybody else to have nightmares about. But Yeah, um, and when, when we say that could be the subject of a future podcast, that sounds like a joke, but it almost definitely will. <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah, let's, make, let's make that threat a reality, definitely. Um, but on that note, I think that's uh, that's all for this. I think it's time to stop, Rodri. <laughs> I think it's time just to, just generally just to stop. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you've uh, enjoyed uh, this week's podcast and you know want to find out more about any of the things we've been talking about, as ever, we've done you know blogs and publications on all of them, and we'll put some links to those in the program notes. Um, if there are things you think we could be covering or we could be doing differently uh, on the podcast, drop us an email at uh, givingthought at cafonline.org. And if you just want to read a bit more about the sort of stuff that we like talking about, um, why not check out the Giving Thought website at www.givingthought.org. Uh, and other than that, it remains to say, see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.